Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You. We do praise You for being an awesome, awesome God, that You do work in our lives, Father, and You do things that are beyond our expectations. Father, show us who You are. We need the real Jesus, Father. There's so many fake and phony Jesuses out there. We as a church are seeking the real Jesus, the one that is there to touch and to heal and to minister. Father, as we lift up our our prayers and our lives to You, we pray that You would be here today to change and to alter us, Father, so that we can be more like You and not like the world around us. Be here, Father. We thank You. We praise You. We give You all the glory, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, chapter 8 has been a, a, a lesson, if you would, as we're going into uh, the parable of the sower. And as Jesus was speaking of the parable of the sower, he was talking about a guy that's sowing seed into different places and it has different reactions to the seed that's being planted. The seed's good, but there's different soils that uh, produce fruit and other ones produce death. And Jesus wants us to be in that place to bear forth fruit in our life. It's hard sometimes. There's decisions that have to be made. We're coming now into this guy named Jarius in verse 41. And it says, And behold, there came a man named Jarius. This guy, he says, was a ruler, a ruler of the synagogue. So this guy, as he comes to Jesus, he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So this guy's approaching Jesus, and he's saying, Jesus, I need you. Interestingly enough, a, a ruler, a, a guy that's used to having people come and beg to him, is now being turned into a beggar himself. He's now in a place where he says, something in my life is changing. Obviously, my daughter's dying, and it's striking a chord in his life that says, I'm at a place of desperation. Uh, It's Mother's Day. Maybe this is a better Father's Day message. But here is somebody who's a parent. And watching your child die strikes the chord of everyone who is a a parent, to realize that I would rather see myself die than my child die. And here he is, is at a place to say, I, I, I'm losing it, Jesus. I need something, anything. And so if you would, maybe this guy who's a synagogue ruler, so that would make him Jewish. And as we know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't quite embrace Jesus all that well. And as a ruler of the Jews, for him to break ranks from his tradition to reach out into Christ was a huge act of desperation. And he's saying, I need. And to see him not just come and make a request, not just come to Jesus and make a demand, he's groveling. And he's saying, Jesus, I'm begging. We've seen a lot of people come last week Uh, when we were going through the chapter, about people that were begging Jesus, making a request of Jesus. And Jesus sometimes doesn't always answer our beggings, the things that we want. What's that old adage, be careful of what you ask for, sometimes you just might get it? I've said that to myself many times. 
And we have to be careful sometimes of what we're asking. And sometimes the Lord in His wisdom says no to us. And only in hindsight we go, Ooh, boy, glad you never gave me what uh, I was asking for there. You know, we were moving from one church building to another, and, and boy, we were, we were begging and begging, Lord, Lord, we need to get this place. We can just, oh, it would be great. And the Lord said no to it. And he says, oh, but now looking at it now, where we are now, we could go back and says, Lord, thank you for not giving us that other place. That would have been a nightmare. And God, God understands things in our life. But here's a guy who feels that his life is, is, is leaving him. His daughter's life is leaving him. That sense of desperation. And yet Jesus, in this case, he's going to respond to this man's begging. He's going to go to heal this man's daughter. It says, but as he went. So Jesus is capitulating. He's honoring this. He's going to say, I'll give in to your beggings and I want to be there for your daughter. But it says that on the process, the multitudes thronged him. I find that to be an interesting word, to throng. You don't hear that too often. I didn't know what it meant. I, I guess it means that they're pressing in on him. I looked at it and said maybe it's a combination of the word throw and the word wrong kind of combined together. It's throwing something together wrong. How's that? And if you would, they're throwing themselves wrongly at Jesus. They're thronging. The multitudes are squeezing in on Jesus. And so he's a popular guy. People want Jesus, if you would. But it says, verse 33, in the midst of this, now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, and it says, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians, the doctors, and could not be healed by any. She came from behind, snuck in on Jesus, if you would, and touched the border of his garment. Just the fringe, if you would. And at that, and immediately, her flow of blood stopped. So there's a healing takes place. The open wound and whatever this may be of this woman, it's not really said what uh, uh, an issue of blood is. Uh, a flow of blood, whether it was some type of permanent menstruation, whether she had an open wound that would not be healed. For 12 years, she is watching her livelihood. The Bible says that life is in the blood. That her life is being drained and capped out of her. Uh, that's a terrible feeling. That, that day after day after day, life is being drained from us. Uh, I don't know. Sometimes we feel that as we get older. We turn around and we start to realize that our lives get sapped out of us, drained out of us. And we hit an age and we feel like, you know, things aren't right. I guess for a woman sometimes they say that she has her biological clock. She's got to have a, a child or something. For men, they go through a midlife crisis and they realize that their life is passing them by. They take a, a, a look at it and they say, what am I really doing with my life? I'm 40-something now and where am I going? What am I doing? And, and that sense of fear, that sense of panic can creep in. My life is being sapped away at this job, at this family, at this way of life. I'm going nowhere and all I've got to look forward to is getting older and deeper in debt. 
And it's a miserable feeling. And, and the Lord is seeing that inside of this gal. She's saying, I've had this miserable feeling of my life being sapped away. It's draining away. And she wants to in this point of desperation. She's coming up and she's saying, I've had it with all other things to, to, to try and save my life. I need Jesus. And correctly so, she's going to come up and just saying in, a, in an act of faith, if I just had a, a touch of Jesus... It would change my life. I find it interesting that it says that she spent all of her livelihood. It doesn't say that she spent all of her money. It says that she spent all of her livelihood. So we assume that that's all of her money. But all of her resources, everything that she had, you can almost see this gal, she's saying, I'm banking on a doctor to take care of me. And the doctors can't. Doctors can never take care of us. Uh, I've yet to see anyone really make it too far past 100. Uh, they don't offer us eternal life. We're destined for failure. Uh, I like what they say that doctors are, they're still practicing medicine. They're practicing for a reason. They, they don't quite have it down. And it's amazing that how so many of us, uh, when, when we get the death sentence put upon us, if you would, that we turn around and almost have this desire when the doctor comes in and says, you've got cancer, that we feel that we have to spend every single thing that we can to stop that process. I don't care whatever it takes. If it takes radiation, if it takes drugs, it takes I'll do whatever it takes to try and stop that process. We're all trying to stop that process. And I don't think that there's an answer that, that, that stops it in the flesh. It's a sad reality that we have to come to. And, and I don't know if it's America today. Uh, there's a mentality inside of America that thinks that uh, medicine is a divine right that some doctor is going to solve all of your problems. There's a, a huge cry in our country for for medical assistance to be given to everybody. And trust me, I, I don't know if this lady spent all of her money getting leeches put on her or something, and we'd like to think that technology has improved, but there's no silver bullet out there. There's nothing that's going to solve all of our issues. And you can spend everything that you have, and you're still going to be faced with the inevitable truth. You're going to die. We watch it every day in our lives in reality as our lives are tapped away from us. There can come inside of us a sense of desperation. And that's what this lady is feeling. And that's what Jarius is feeling as he's watching his daughter die. And you can feel that sense of desperation that all of us can identify with, all of us struggle with, all of us would do anything to make sure that we can go another day. And Jesus is there, and he's realizing he's going to say, hey, this lady is going to be healed. And I, I think the truth of the story is, is that you're going to find out that it's only Jesus that's going to satisfy our thirst in our heart, the hunger in our souls. We need to be spiritual people and not fleshly people. And so Jesus is turning around and he's going to recognize it's, it's going to be weird what Jesus says here. But Jesus turns around and he asks the question, and it almost sounds kind of rude in a sense, but he says, who touched me? And he's asking, if you would, a question 
um, as uh, even Peter's going to say, what are you, crazy here? He says, uh, as he asks this question, he says, who touched me? And it says, and then all denied it. And Peter and those with him said, well, hey, master, the multitude strong and press uh, you, and you say, who touched me? You can almost see Peter say, what are you, crazy? You've got this whole multitude of people. They're all swarming in on you, Jesus. What do you mean? Everybody's elbowing each other. We're pushing and shoving our way through a crowd. we got everybody coming here. And you're worried about, like, somebody touching you? What are you, crazy? But Jesus, I think when he's asking the question, I don't think he's lacking knowledge. I don't think that he's missing something. He's trying to set the tone. And notice the tone is rather offensive. He's going to be, well, I sense power coming from me, and you know, and, and it wasn't given out of my permission, if you would. I think when he's asking the question, if we're part of last week's message as well, when he came up to this guy Legion with all the demons, and he says, what's your name? Now he's going to this person, and who touched me? Jesus is, is, is trying to... I don't want to say intimidate, but he's trying to, by asking a question, almost put us on guard to have a sense of respect for who and what Jesus is. There's a cavalier attitude in so many people that just believe they're going to come marching into heaven and just demand that God, you know, does everything that they want. Well, I'm going to get to heaven, it's going to be like this. I'm going to get to heaven, it's going to be like that. When I get to heaven, this is the way it's going to be. Well, I think Jesus wants to say something to us. It's like, wake up. The world doesn't revolve around you. There is a God, the creator of the universe. He's the one that everything revolves around. And we have an obligation sometimes to think about that we're approaching his household. Think of yourself going up to his kingdom, to his, to his doors, knocking on the doors and saying, Lord, let me in. And you can almost hear him says, well, who are you? Why would I let you in? And we seem to get, you know, erase that whole conversation. Well, of course he's got to let me in. I mean, I don't think there's too many people that actually think that they're just going to go burn in hell. And there's a few people that says, oh, I'm going to go to hell. That's where my friends are. I'm going to party there, you know. But most people are under this assumption that they're just going to walk right in. And I think what Jesus wants to do is says, you need to get past some of that assuming part and get into the understanding that you're approaching God. You are touching God. And it's not to be something that you're going to sneak in the back door. You're going to, you know, steal something from God and just march into his house. Jesus says, you've got to go through the front door. He's telling you in John chapter 10, he says, I'm the... I'm the gatekeeper, if you would. I'm the doorkeeper here. I'm the one you've got to come through me. You're not going to be able to say, well, I snuck in the back door. I, I, I got away with something, and I'm going, to, I'm going to get into heaven whether I get through the front door guard or not. And Jesus puts it up there, and he's asking the question, who are, who, who are you? No, no, who are you? And in a sense, when you start to ask somebody a question, it does. It intimidates people sometimes. It says, well, gee, I didn't know there was going to be, a, you know, question and answer period to get into the kingdom of heaven you know you you hope it's not going to be like jeopardy or something you know because i don't do very good at that (laughs) i hope he doesn't ask me 20 questions uh uh uh, i don't know uh uh, what is the capital of uh, uh, argentina i don't know you know then 
you, you, you would hope that if it's not going to be technical questions, that the Lord wouldn't come to you and start asking you, what did you do with your life? Who, who are you? What makes you up? What's your name? What are you all about? And then we start looking at ourselves and we go, I'm a sinner, Lord. I'm a failure. I've failed miserably at life. I don't like these questions either. I don't have good answers for who I am. And there can be a sense when asked questions that we have a tendency sometimes to want to dodge questions. That we don't want to be there answering certain things. And Jesus comes up. He's asking a question. He's putting things there. And notice everyone's coming up. Oh, I didn't touch on it. Even the gal that got healed is denying. I, I don't, no, no, don't. Just let me hide in the back. I don't want to be seen. And, and when all denied it, you're going to see. And then Jesus said, well, somebody touched me. Do you hear that tone? How dare somebody touch me? Somebody touched me. For I perceived power going from me. And so now the woman, she sees that she's busted. It says, now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And falling down before him. She's now saying, oh man, I, I was desperate. I reached out. I, 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 I had to do something. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately so she's come and says hey, i i didn't mean you know jesus you know i i, I had no other way and i i gotta come to you and and here i sit and, and i was bleeding my life and i i had to try something different and and it's me and when i did it i was healed immediately i love that and what does he say oh it's you you know chop her fingers off it's you i can't believe who let you in no, that's not what he's saying. And as he's asking questions, it's important. He said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. It's okay. Your faith has made you well go in peace. Do you hear that? That, that answers all of our fears. When we would sit down and say, Lord, I, I know you don't like me. I know I don't have the right answers. I know I'm not very smart. I'm trying to get into the kingdom of heaven, and now you're looking at me, and I'm afraid you're going to kick me out. And Jesus goes, no, I just want you to know who you are, but I love you, and it's okay. Come on into the kingdom. And at that we go, oh, that's the true heart of God. And here he is. He's, he's not here to chew us out. He's here to love us. Do you hear that? So many of us have a, a fear, an intimidation of God. There is a process of truly, righteously having a fear and being intimidated by God. But when we stand before God in truth, and I love the scripture, it says, He's mindful that we are but dust. I always quote that. That's out of the Psalms. He's saying, hey, you know what? I made you out of the dirt. It's not like I got great expectations out of you, you know? We threw you know, a pile of dirt together, we breathed in it. Hey, there's Adam and Eve, you know? It's like, he knows, he knows what we're about that we are people that are more than capable of sin. And somehow or another, he wants us, though, still not to walk in his house as a sinner and track dirt all over the place, but to at least have the decency to go up to him and say, You are my Lord. You are my Savior. I know what you are to do. Now, Father, may I come in? And he goes, Sure. I, I think what he can't stand is that person that just barges in and says, Hey, this is who I am. What's going on in this joint? 
And that attitude, that attitude destroys people's lives. Now watch how these stories, these are intertwined. You're going to see another story come in. And he says, well, it says, while he was still speaking. So he, the, the words haven't even left his mouth. Someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house. So back to the story of Jarius here. Saying to him, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher. So you hear the tone in that? It, it, too late now. It's over with. It's it's toast, man. She's gone. It, it, you know, it was a failed effort. And Jesus, when he heard it, he goes, no, I'm sorry. It's it's not over with. He says he answered him and he's saying, do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. So he is the one that's saying, I'm in the control of life and death. I will be the one that calls the shots. And he's saying, don't be afraid again. Only believe. And when he came into the house, listen to this, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. So he's only taking, at this point, only five people come into the house. Now all wept and mourned for her. Who are those people? Those are the five people, I believe, that are all weeping and mourning for her. Everyone's looking at it and says, she's gone. Sorry, your daughter's lost. But he says to, I believe, the five. And he says, do not weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And they looked at Jesus and they <coughs> what are you talking about? They ridiculed him knowing that she was dead. And they're going, Jesus, you're crazy. Come on. You, you, what are you talking about? She's asleep. We know a dead corpse. Look, move her. So, you know, she's not waking up. She's stiff. She's dead. She's gone. It's over with. But Jesus is saying, no, it is not. And no, it's what she's in is nothing more than a sleeping state as far as he is concerned. Because God can bring forth life into death. And then it says again, but he put them all outside. And I would argue, who are they? I think he's throwing even Peter, James, and John, and mother and dad out the side, saying, get out of here. But he's going to take her by the hand, and he called, saying, little girl, arise. And the spirit returned, and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. And at that point, her parents were astonished. They were shocked and awe, if you would. And it says, and he charged them to tell no one what had happened. But if you would, I, I find this to be interesting. I read this, and I think it really reads that here he is. He's taking even his closest disciples. You can disagree with me on that point. My wife and I argue about that all the time, whether it was... Uh, they just threw the crowd out and those five people came in and they were faithful and true. But I really read this passage, especially as it's portrayed here in Luke, and it says, hey, I think those five people, mom, dad, and the three closest disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, the hierarchy of the future church, what are you doing? You're looking at even them turning around and say, <coughs> give me a break, Jesus. You're, you're crazy. And, and what Jesus is wanting to do through this process, we talked about it last week, he wants to blow your mind on what he is capable of doing. And even if you're one of the closest disciples of Jesus, 
And even the parents here are going to be astonished at the power of God on what God is able to do. We need to turn around and to say, God, you can do things beyond what I am capable of even thinking and perceiving in my mind what you can do. Do do we have things in our life that, that, that sit down and we go, oh, well, God, I know you can do this, but you can't do that. Well, God, I know if I was $10 short on the rent, oh, I could pray and you could bring in $10. Oh, but if I'm $1,000 behind, you can't do that, Jesus. I've got to rob a bank to do that, solve that problem. i got to do this. Lord, my life is leaving me. You can't stop that. And Jesus says, oh, yes, I can. Well, what if I'm dead? Oh, that's over with. And in the mind, things start to happen between you and I. We get to a point where we go, oh, well, that's all God can do. We love, as people, to limit God and say, well, God can only do this much. I know that He'll do this and this, but He won't do that and that. That's unbelief. That's when we eliminate God in our lives. That's when we quench the power of the Holy Spirit. That's when we cease to believe, when we look at a situation and say, it can't happen. So, The truth be known that as we come before God, looking at the big doors, knocking on the door, God is going to tell you He loves you, He cares about you, and you can come into the kingdom of God so long as you don't do the one big no-no. The sin that eliminates us is lacking faith, disbelieving God. And when God says, we'll bring this back, And we go, no, it can't happen. Can't happen. No, it won't happen. Now that's when we that's when we are effectively eliminated from the process of everything in the kingdom of God. We will never bear fruit for God in our distrust and our unbelief. Now we can waver, we can have doubts, we can have fears, we can we're all human. Every single one of us go through situations that that, 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 that scare us to a point. But in our heart of hearts, there has to be a time to say, but Lord, I, I, you're my, my one shred of hope in this situation. Lord, I don't know what else to do. I'm losing everything and, and I know we're going to die, but how do I find life? And, and, and if I can just touch the garment, of, if I can just get the touch of God in my life, things would change. And listen, this is amazing. Do you hear what's being said? Honestly, what saves us is having faith in God. We are saved. What separates the sheep from the goats, what separates those that go from heaven to hell, is not whether or not we've jumped through certain things, not whether or not we went to Sunday every church, not whether or not we've given X amount of dollars, not whether or not we're powerful, prestigious people. What makes the difference between all of us, and we're looking at the sorting process of God, who sees the parable of the sower throwing that seed out there, and he says, how does God deal with a whole bunch of people in this world? He starts to sift them, and what he does, he's looking at the heart, and he's looking at you and I, and he wants to find out whether you and I believe. Isn't that amazing? So you're not going to go to heaven or hell based upon anything that you've ever done or haven't done. You can be an axe murderer and, and kill 75 people. You can get down on your knees and say, Lord, I'm sorry, man, my heart, and I need to repent and I need to be made right, and you can still go to heaven. 
And what separates that is if your heart, in your heart of hearts, still says, then I believe, Father, that you can overcome all of my sin. The problem is, is that we've murdered 75 people. We're sitting there and we're saying, God, I know the fact that I've killed 75 people. You can't forgive. I can't forgive myself. My mother can't even forgive me over this one. And I'm, I'm going to burn. And the fact of the matter is, is we'll probably burn if we'll never be able to get our heart that says, somewhere deep in our heart that's able to say, you can do this, Lord. You can do this. You can do this. But unfortunately, so many people, they stop and they ridicule Jesus in the midst of actually being able to express what God is able to do. Jesus says, I can take care of this. (laughs) No, you can't. No, you can't, Jesus. Come on. You can't touch this pain in my life. And Jesus goes, yes, I can. Believe. Believe in a miracle. And if we are sitting down there, approaching the throne of God, the you know pearly gates, whatever's up there, knocking on the door, and we're saying, Lord, I know that you're a loving, caring, forgiving God, and that you'll accept me, I'm going to believe and trust in you. But if you turn around and says, well, Lord, I'm good enough. I'm better than most people, and I deserve to get in here. And when I get in there, I better see some pretty nice stuff. And you better make sure I'm happy in there, God. I want my 70 virgins. I want blah, 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 blah. Hey, where's your heart? Where's your faith? What are you expecting? What's going on here? And I find it amazing that, that what we need in our hearts is really, it's called a sense of adventure. We got to look at things and say, you know what, God can do. That's what believing is. That all things are possible in God. You know, there's never a point in people's life that you just look at somebody and says, well, that's retrobate, that's trash, that's never going to be, you know, healed or touched or fixed. Calvary Chapel, by its very core of what we are as believers, as a church, and there's a thousand Calvary Chapels around the country. Uh, Calvary Chapel started in the hippie movement back in the 60s and 70s in the beaches of California. And, and, it, and, it, and as much as we associate with, with what Calvary Chapel is, that's what I got saved under, that's where I started to go to Bible school at. To be a Calvary Chapel, you have to have seven truths that you're going to hang on to to be an essential for what makes us distinguished from other churches. You know, so we have to do things. Uh, Chuck's philosophy is that if you go to a Calvary Chapel in California, you go to the Calvary Chapel in in, uh, in Ohio, you know, it's like if you went to a McDonald's in California, you go to a McDonald's out here. You order a Big Mac out there, you expect, the, I know what I'm going to get. I'm going to a McDonald's, I'm getting a Big Mac, I know exactly how it's going to taste. And hopefully you do the same thing as you go from a Calvary to a Calvary. You know what you're getting. Well, what you're going to get because... Pastor Dave's different than any other pastor. There's things that are going to be unique, but the essentials have to be the same. And it's very simple. You have to teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So we're going to systematically teach the whole entire Bible. That's the biggie. You can't just say, well, we're going to do topical sermons. It's time for Pastor Dave to do the ten topical reasons on why you have to tithe and give your money to us. Uh, Kick you out of Calvary. (laughs) Get out of here. You have to systematically 
you know, teach the word. You have to have a, a sense of grace and teach that you're saved by grace and grace alone. You can't turn around and say, well, you've got to go out and get baptized, and if you're baptized, then you'll be saved. I can't teach that. They'd kick me out of Calvary for that. We have views on, 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 on Calvinism, if you would, whether we're predestined and fatalistic or everything's a free will choice. There's, there's a middle road that I have to walk, and, and, and it gets weird on, on how things are. And I have to be that way because you can veer one way or the other. We have a very uh, predetermined view. We are pre-tribulation saints. We're, we're going to be raptured. I can't teach another doctrine or they kick you out. Well, one of the other truths that's in there, it's, it's amazing. You listen to Chuck and he's telling you, he says, if you want to be a Calvary Chapel, you have to understand and believe these truths. And the seventh one, it almost seems like people just throw it in the trash and don't really understand it. But it's a spirit of having uh, adventure. You have to have a, 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 an adventurous spirit to be a Calvary Chapel. What's that mean? Well, that means you look at something and Calvary Chapel says, you know, we looked at a bunch of, you know, surfer hippies out there and we said God can work with them. We can plant a church and we're going to go forward. It's not that you just throw these people in the trash. It's not that this is a lost generation. There's got to be a sense of hope. Let's try something different. And why do we always have to do the same old thing over and over and over again? The gospel can be applied into anywhere, any place, anything. And there should be inside of us as a church say, God can do that. I don't know about you. I was getting ready. You know, you might think I'm nuts here. and I've caught a ton of flack sometimes for it. But I'm, we're getting ready to take the week off to go ride the motorcycle through North Carolina. And Pastor Dave is kind of the... Christian sport bike pastor, we ride down through the mountains and then there'd be 40, 50 of us on motorcycles and, and, and you know, we'll pull over the side and I can stop and pull up my Bible, teach a Bible study down there and it's going to be a great week. I'll be gone all the way up until Friday, come back for next Sunday, do the baptism and stuff. But it's, it's awesome and it's amazing at how many people would say, what are you doing that for? You've got four kids. You've got this. You know, is this some midlife crisis thing that you're going through? And you got to sit down and says, no, I have no idea how I got, you know, my brother gave me a motorcycle. I got roped. I, a few years ago, I never even rode a motorcycle. And, and partly, you've got to be able to say, say, hey, why not? I mean, who ever thought that I'd be the motorcycle pastor? <laughs> I would never have thought that. But there has to be that wild hair. There has to be that spirit of adventure that would turn around and say, let's try it. Well, you know, I'll go down there and speak. I'll ride a motorcycle if that's what trips their trigger. We've got to reach out to a generation of people that, that are deemed lost. Oh, they're just hooligans out there. Well, let's go down there and try and reach out to them. There has to be that spirit of adventure inside of each one of us. And when we get into a, a narrow-minded frame, and don't misunderstand me because there are things that we have to have a framework on, on our theology, our doctrine, and understanding who Jesus is. But there has to be an openness on the application and to believe that God can do anything. God can put us into a place and say, these group of people can be touched. When we look at a society or a group of people and says, God doesn't care about them. I don't care about them. That's when we're hard-hearted, cruel. That's the disbelief that comes in. That's what nullifies us. And, and, and honestly... As a Christian, there are things that can nullify us and ruins our effectiveness. 
I find it amazing. We had, you know, a, a, a Christian bookstore. We used to be over in the strip mall over there off a country club. And we had a couple suites and we opened up a Christian bookstore in there. And it was a hugely losing proposition dollars and cents wise. <laughs> but we felt it was a great outreach to the community to be able to get people in the church, give them a free tape, invite them to church and, and, and use it for, for that purpose. And I'm telling you, it... it it's strange to have our church, and we, we had one person that got a couple hundred bucks a month to actually organize the church, but it was based upon volunteers. So if we would say, hey, Calvary Chapel, you want to do some outreach, you want to be an evangelist, come volunteer at the bookstore. And people in the church would step up to the plate and volunteer, and they'd stand behind the counter, and you would find people in the church that were terrible. They... They offended half the customers that came in. Now, put yourself in my shoes as the pastor of the church, and little Susie Johnny comes up and says, Pastor Dave, I'll volunteer at the bookstore. And then you start to realize that their customer service was horrendous. And you're going, you're not representing Christ. You have a bitter, grumpy attitude. And... Do you know how hard it is to tell somebody who's volunteering their time and then say, I'm sorry, we don't need you this Tuesday at the store. Uh, we'd be better off closing the doors. Than... And it's sad to see so many people that, that just didn't, in our own church, have the right attitude. And that attitude of faith, of seeing somebody walk through the door and be able to have an attitude of, of believing that this person can be changed, loved, helped. To look at just somebody, just customer service, and to realize there's so many people, if, if this was, a, 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 if this was a, a business, let's just say we're, you know, Calvary Chapel here is an entity. And, and I get a chuckle out of this. This used to be a steakhouse. And, and as a steakhouse, waitresses and cooks and dishwashers all had to go through a process to be nice. I, 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 keep, I keep with me, I found this in my office. Uh, my office is the old manager's office. It was at the time. It was a little closet in the back over there that they had the safe and, you know, the manager would be there. And I found this little coin in there. And it always, it always it's, it's cute because it's, 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 I guess they gave it to every employee. And it says, it says on this little coin, it says, I pledge to be helpful, friendly, and courteous to all Ryan's customers. Right? I go, well, that's nice, you know. And on the back it turns around and it kind of says, uh, their four points are to smile, have eye contact, greet, and thank. And you go, you know, so you can just picture somebody who would be the waitress here and they had to carry that little coin with their pocket, I guess, to remind them to be a nice person so that they could get a customer. Now, it's kind of weird. I kind of look at this and I said, okay, now let's just say we've got Calvary Chapel is now the inhabitants that dwell in this building. I would like to think that the new inhabitants of the building could be kinder, happier, and smiling more than the old inhabitants of the building, right? I would like to think we've improved the neighborhood by putting a church in here. Sometimes I wonder. I go, gee, Christian, 
the, the, the waitress at, at Ryan's would at least be smart enough to be, smile. Hey, how you doing? Thank somebody for walking through the door. And when you see so many people in the church and they're grumpy, they got this attitude of disbelief. That's what it is. That's the root. That we as Christians should walk up to somebody, hey, you are completely weird and wacko to me, but I believe God can change you. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the future of spending some time with you. Now, I can at least say that. But why, you know, a waitress could say that if she's serving a steak, then we should be serving the Holy Spirit and love and joy and eternal life. And most of us fail. We are filled with that, that laughing at Jesus and saying, give me a break. They, they turned around and it says, they turned around and, and they, they were laughing at Jesus. They were snickering at him. And I, I find that a, a amazing that, that here, that attitude can be something prevalent. And I really do hold to the fact that Peter, James, and John, and the parents of this can snicker and snide at Jesus. Because if it can happen to Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John were just on the boat, same chapter. And they should have said, wow, Jesus, you can stop the sea. You can calm the waters. This raising the dead's no problem for you. But even at that, they turned around and snickered at Jesus. And how many of us who have seen Jesus still the waters, and Jesus comes up to us and says, this is what I want you to do, we immediately eliminate the power of God in our mind. And what it all comes down to, as for you and I as believers, is to have faith. We have to believe. What does that mean? That just really means, God, you're able. You say so. You say to go to the other side. We'll go to the other side. Lord, at your will, I will do what needs to be done in my life. I believe. And so many of us, we wrestle with the reality our lives are tapping away, sapped away. We're getting older. Biological clock is ticking. We're bleeding our hearts out, Lord, and we're going nowhere. And God comes up to you and He promises you everlasting life. He says, you will have everlasting life. <laughs> That's stupid. We all die, we rot in the grave. We all heard about evolution from our teacher at school. We know we're just going to just be pushing up daisies, and that's as far as we go. Everything in the Bible is on the premise that there is everlasting life for a believer, that there is life after death. We sit down there and say, Lord, I need to put some trust and belief in that. And that is, listen to this, that is ground zero, battleground for every single thing that separates the men from the boys, from believers from non-believers, from the sheep from the goats, from those that go to heaven, from those that go to hell. The only thing that separates them is the fact that you are going to have in your heart a sense of believing you're able and there's more to this life than the life that I see. You throw that out the window and you'll become the grumpy, stinky, arrogant, mean-spirited person who says, well, that's all I've got. We're just trying to survive here. Who cares? 
Ryan's customers do better. Ryan's waitresses will do better, and, and we will become a less effective person for this community than having a steakhouse here. At least people could eat something. And we want to be able to say, no, Lord, I want to have faith. I want to have hope. I, want to, I, I need. And God is begging you. And he says, hey, I want to do a work in you. And I just want to close with that thought to say, you know, he turned around and he says, he said, you know, don't tell anyone. And I find that amazing, just to realize that, that God is saying, don't say anything. Because sometimes we as Christians, and each time Jesus says that, there's a different meaning behind it. It's, it's fascinating how you see that applied. But he's like, you know, people need to experience this themselves. This is not something you go out and share. I can't give you and instill in your heart a sense of faith in believing in God. You need to experience that yourself. It's not something to be said. It's not something to be told. Yes, I can proclaim about the good things of the Lord. Yes, I, I want to be able to be a witness and a testify of these things. But for you to have a sense of appreciation of all that God has, you need to work on your heart. God can only give you an experience for you. And inside of you and I, we have to be able to sit down and to seek after the Lord and say, Lord, I don't see it happening, but I just want to touch the garment of what you are so that things could be greater, so that I will know you, so that I can experience you. God wants to do that work in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's uh, stand and close in prayer. If you uh, are quick enough to put the last three sermons together, we're talking really about what it is to be a true disciple. We talked about in the first week that making a disciple in our book was to first off to ask the question, to say, Lord, I'm asking you to give me some wisdom here. Second thing that we said was last week we were talking about hearing the call of God. So if you ask God the question, then you've got to hear the call of God and now we're looking at the third trait is that you have to believe what you're hearing. God wants to speak to you. You need to ask. He wants to speak and then receive the things that He has spoken to you. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You and praise You for being an awesome, awesome God. I pray, Father, that You would do a work in our hearts for those that are here today that we would cross over that threshold, Father, that we would go from death to life, out of the darkness of the kingdom of darkness, Father, into the kingdom of light, by inside of us, Father, that you would do a miracle. Put in us, Father, a, a shred of hope to believe. Father, just to touch the hem of your garment. Father, all of us can be a little scared. All of us can be a little intimidated. But, Father... We need You. We're desperate, Father, for a finding life. And I pray that You, Father, would touch those that are asking here today. That You would change those people's lives so that they would have everlasting life. Father, help this not just to become a, a Bible study. Help it not to be a sermon. Help this to be a, a process to find everlasting life. Father, we love You. We praise You, Father. We give You all the glory, Father. And we're just asking that You, Father, would work a mighty work here today. We praise You, Father. We thank You. In Jesus' precious name we pray. 
Amen. Amen.